We'll drop the mic, okay? The classic mic drop there. It's, uh, it's good seeing you all. So I say thank you to you all for being here and for those who every week uh, help make this possible. Uh, we went from check-in to our sound to our music to just everything. Um, thank you so much. And uh, I was just listening, you know, throughout this. I, I tend to do that a lot, just sit and listen. And uh, I noticed something the Sabbath, and I don't think I've ever noticed it. Um, we talk about God and Jesus a lot, but I don't think I realized how many times we mentioned the Holy Spirit. Uh, just this morning, we've mentioned the Holy Spirit more than God or Jesus or anything else, uh, even in our music. Um, and there's a reason for that. And uh, I want to explore that with you just a little bit. Uh, so thanks for reading the scripture, uh, Carlos. Um, and as you can imagine, the sermon is about the Holy Spirit. And uh, the Holy Spirit is something that's very difficult to explain. Um, but he is a person that is God, that is essential to our Christian lives. Um, so let's pray before we get started. Father in heaven, um, we want to thank you for all the good things that you give us. For the blessing of life, for the breath of life, for being with us through thick and thin, for being our anchor in the storm, for being our hope and our redeemer. We thank you for these things and we asked only to be able to see you and experience you, perceive you in this morning. Um, May you bless the words that come out of my mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'm going to take my mask off, but that's okay. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're in John chapter 16. Um, this comes almost immediately after Jesus teaches his disciples about uh, this concept of the vine and the branches where he tells his disciples that they must abide in him as he abides in them and we talked a little bit about the concept of grace and what it means to remain with with jesus remain with christ but overall what it means for christ to remain with us even when we are unfaithful even when his disciples fail to be there with jesus to be faithful disciples Jesus remains with them, and he even gives his life for them while they are estranged from him. They are hiding, or they are in a, in a state where they have just either uh, denied him, or they're just in hiding. They're afraid. And Jesus remains with them. And so Jesus, after teaching them about this concept, begins to talk about something that to us might be very familiar, which is this idea of the Spirit. And so I'm going to ask you to, to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16. Um, it's just a few verses. Uh, I'm going to read from verse 7 to 15. Um, and again, this is Jesus 
preparing his disciples for the moment in which he would leave them. Um, he knows he's going to the cross. He knows his disciples won't completely understand the next few events that are about to occur. Um, but he nevertheless wants them to be prepared. He wants to give them something that they can hang on to uh, in this moment that they're about to experience. So chapter 16 of John, the Gospel of John, verse 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate or the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. See, when Jesus teaches his disciples in the Gospel of John, we get this sense that he uh, tends to repeat the same concepts in different ways. Here Jesus talks about the advocate or the helper that was to come once he had left the disciples. But then he repeats the same idea over, now referring to the advocate or the helper as the spirit of truth that will guide his disciples, will guide us into all truth. And I want you to think about that because Jesus also said that he had many things to tell his disciples, but that they could not bear at that moment. And so I wonder how, how many things might God be willing to reveal to us that we are just not simply ready to understand or to learn or to hear. And we're talking about the creator and author of life itself. The creator of the entire universe is to us a great mystery. Yet this creator, this mystery, reveals itself bit by bit, allowing us to sort of catch up to, to be in a moment where we are ready for the revelation of another layer of who God is. But God's thoughts are so much higher than our own. It's an interesting balance. Each of us might be at different stages of faith today or different stages of our relationship with God. Some might be at the beginning of their journey as disciples of Jesus and might be ready for only some things, while those who have been disciples of Jesus for longer might be ready for other things. Now, I'm not talking about simple facts that the Spirit is revealing, but rather truth in the sense that, that encompasses our decision-making, our moral compasses, our definitions of what's right and what's wrong, what's just 
and what is fair, truth that affects us eternally, but that we practice every single day. And so here is uh, here I want us to focus on this promise of the Spirit, specifically the part about how it's to our advantage that Jesus is no longer with us physically. It seems kind of odd to say that it's better for Jesus to not be here with us right now, that we can't see him, uh, that it's to our advantage that he is no longer here physically. That seems odd. So the good news often begins as what seems to be bad news. And that's just how how it seems to work. It, It must first seem to be a tragedy before it becomes a hope-filled message. Here, Jesus tells his disciples that he must leave them so that the advocate or the helper or the spirit of truth might come. And that this was somehow better than if he had stayed with them physically. So here's an analogy. So during this pandemic, uh, schools and churches, as you know, uh, went from meeting in person to meeting online. And uh, we as a church went from having our church services here to having them on Facebook and live streaming them. And there might be some of you still watching from home uh, today. And I believe that most of us would agree that in-person church or school is better than having it online. Now, sure, there, there, are so, there are some good things about having things online. And, and, I, and I think that there's just something different about being actually present in a classroom, in the presence of your teacher or uh, your church community or whatever group we're talking about. But what if I told you, right, that it's to your advantage, to our advantage, that the classroom and the church move to be online only from here on out? Right, that, that in-person meetings would no longer exist, and that on top of that, uh, you wouldn't be able to see your teacher like uh, like you normally are doing now on a screen uh, or a pastor on a camera, uh, and, and that somehow not being able to see them and maybe not even being able to hear them physically is to your advantage. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't sound good, right? And most of us think about Jesus and we wish we had him here today so that we could ask him questions, so that we could hear him teach, so that we could watch him do something amazing, so that we can share our hearts with him. And we read this conversation and we scratch our heads. How on earth could that be an advantage to not have him here? The disciples had a physical teacher, and they would no longer have him. They would now have to rely on this ambiguous person, this spirit of truth that Jesus talks about, a breath, a wind of God. They would be trading Jesus for this ambiguous person. How is that good news? It it seems like a bad trade. It's 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 not a good deal. But Yet here we are, no Jesus, but we have the spirit of truth. Jesus is here tapping into something that is very deep within 
the Hebrew religion and culture deep in the stories of the Old Testament, we have this concept of the Spirit of God. In Genesis, the Spirit of God is set to hover over the waters as God begins to speak things into being. And the Greek word that, that, that is translated as spirit is pneuma, from where we get the word pneumatics, or, or relating to air and wind. And the Hebrew word is similar. It's uh, ruach, which just means wind or breath, and we translate it as spirits. Genesis talks about a ruach of God, the spirit of God. In Genesis also, God molds a human being out of clay. In fact, Adam literally means to be red in Hebrew. Adam is made out of the red clay of earth. And then God breathes into Adam the breath of life. And Adam becomes a living soul. So God's spirit is wind or breath is seen throughout scripture as having an essential role in life and in creation. Even after the creation of the world, the Spirit of God continues to create. During the exodus from Egypt, the Spirit is said to have come down on artisans and inspired them to create art and furniture for the tabernacle where God would reside with the people. So the same Spirit of God is breath of God is referenced here by Jesus and will continue to be referenced by others after him. Paul, for instance, wrote, he writes, for all scripture is God breathed, echoing this idea that there's this breath, this wind or spirit of God that is involved in the creation of all things. God's spirit continues to create, even after we think creation is complete. For instance, every time that you and I breathe, if you take a breath, it's a reminder of that first breath that God gave Adam. Each time a baby is born and they take that first breath, the Spirit of God is present and giving them life. So, I want you all to to do something with me right now. I know you all are wearing masks, but I want everybody to take a deep breath. Just breathe in. What you have just done is uh, also known as inspiring. We have just inspired. To expire is to breathe out. To inspire is to breathe in, right? Without inspiration, without breathing, we die. And so, in a very real and physical sense, the Spirit of God keeps us alive. In a very tangible sense, God is breathing into us. But the Spirit of God is always focused on creating, on recreating, on restoring. What we call the Spirit or the soul, the human soul, is simply all one thing in the Bible. God breathed into Adam, and Adam became a living soul. All of it. Your mind, your thoughts, your feelings, they are all tied to this breath of God. And Jesus says that it is to our advantage that he leaves, because then the spirit of truth, this breath 
of truth would come to us and lead us into all truth. Inspiration is actually happening all around us. God does not, in this sense, inspire us, but rather we breathe in. We inspire God. I know that sounds kind of weird, but we just talked about the meaning of inspiration. We are the ones supplied with breath of life by God. Therefore, we are constantly inspiring God, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. The Spirit of God is not simply our conscience. Right? Our conscience is in our mind. We have something called a, a frontal lobe in our brains. We each have one. And this is the part of our brains that allows us to make decisions. The part that allows us to think. The part that makes these difficult choices every day. Like when you want to eat candy, but you know you shouldn't <laughs> because it's not good for you. That's the part that allows us to make the decision that sometimes go against what we feel we need or we want, we desire. There's another part of the brain that communicates these needs and wants, right? Hunger and thirst. These needs and wants are communicated to our frontal lobe for decision making. We have the ability to control when we eat when we drink, what we eat, what we drink, because of this. We can become a disciplined because we have this special ability. We are not simply instinct. We have rational minds. And this gives rise to the idea that our mind and our heart are always at war with each other, when it's really our emotional mind struggling with our rational mind. Because our rational mind has the ability of saying, nope, I may be feeling this way, but my feelings are not always good indicators of reality. That's a developed conscience. The Spirit of God can, however, influence our consciences. God can intervene and interact with us at this level, but God is not our conscience. The Spirit of God is essential because not only are we sustained by God's breath, we are renewed and we are transformed by Him. I'm using a personal pronoun here because the Spirit of God is a person, according to Jesus. See, I think Jesus is trying really hard to communicate something that is very difficult for humans to understand. Earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, Jesus has a talk with a religious leader named Nicodemus. And Jesus tells him that he must be born again of the Spirit. Why? Because it is the spirit that gives life. It is the God breath that brings life. Nicodemus is confused by this. So Jesus explains that the wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. He continues and he says, very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? We must be born of the Spirit. This means we must allow the same Spirit, the God breath, to fill us 
and to guide us so that we may be recreated and restored into the humans that we were intended to be. To be human beings that are truly alive, we must constantly be in contact with this life-giving breath of God. And notice that this means we are, all of us, right, inspiring God. We each have God's breath in us. This metaphorical breath of God is how God interacts with us, you and me, each day. Unseen, yet we perceive his effects. This God breath is one with God and one with Jesus. This is why Jesus says that he will declare to us, what he declares to us is doesn't come from himself, but comes from God and Jesus. It's all one thing. So how do we come in contact with this breath of God? This is what Nicodemus was confused about. How, how do we do this thing, Jesus? Jesus doesn't seem to plainly answer the question. He tells Nicodemus what is, what is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. He makes a very defined distinction between the two things. The result of your nature is going to resemble your nature. The result of your earthly thoughts and actions will simply be more earthly thoughts and actions. But the result of contact with the life-giving breath of God will be true life. The result of knowing God, according to Jesus, is eternal life. We talk about being spiritual. And in Jesus' view, our spiritual lives are inseparable from our physical lives. They are connected. So we must be, quote unquote, born again from the Spirit. And Jesus expects Nicodemus not to be astonished by this teaching. Why are you confused? The Spirit gives life. If you are not inspiring it, breathing it in, metaphorically, you are not fully alive. And I'm going to pause here. The Spirit of God is, I think, a metaphor. I don't think that Jesus really means that the breath of God is what is at work here. This just a breath. I think, and I could be wrong, but I think that Jesus is trying to get us to see that God is actually at work all around us, although he remains invisible. Just as the wind blows, but cannot be seen. Just as the trees outside will sway when, on, a, on a windy day, um, God causes things to move and brings life to us. But God cannot be seen. Therefore, God is talked about as the wind. That is, after all, what the word spirit actually means. It means wind or breath. I get the sense that Jesus is teaching us something that we can hardly begin to understand. Although we are constantly in contact with it. How do we become aware of what the Spirit of God is doing. 
How, how do we become aware of the Spirit? And prayer seems to be the answer. Not the typical prayer, but the kind of prayer that is born out of a deep desire to connect with God. Out of a deep need to find wisdom, to find comfort, to find strength in times of trouble. It's the kind of prayer that changes who we are, even if the prayer that we're, we're praying is itself never answered. That the kind of prayer that causes us to wrestle with who God is or might be and who we might become. The kind of prayer that brings you to tears and a deep longing for God. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I think there's a good chance you might have yet to experience this, this breath of God. And there's also might be a good chance that you might just think I'm crazy when I talk about it. But I just ask you to bear with me. For example, God isn't real to me because of the Bible. The Bible is real to me because of God. God is real to me because of prayer. God is real to me because I've wanted to wrestle with him. I've wanted to challenge him to his face at times. Sacrilegious. I know it sounds that way. But you know what? It's real. Have you ever prayed a doubting prayer? An angry prayer? A sad prayer? A desperate prayer? God has, in my opinion, at times, let me down. God has, in my experience, left many things unanswered. But God has also, in my experience, always been big enough to take my doubts, my anger, my sadness, my desperation, and under pressure molded. I am not who I once was because the God breath has encountered me. I will not continue to be who I am now because the God breath will continue to encounter me. Being God breathed does not make anyone inerrant. It doesn't mean that we cannot make mistakes because we have been inspired by God. It has nothing to do with that. To be God-breathed is to be alive, to have a choice, to learn from our mistakes and to be guided into all truth. Truth about who God is, what God is like, who we are, and truth about what it means to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God. Truth about equity, truth about our moral Choices, our intentions, our motivations. Truth not as fact, but as testimony. What does your life testify to? I saw a video earlier this week that asked, if, if you had 60 seconds left to live, what would you do? Would you have any regrets? Who would you call? What would your life mean? And I've been thinking about it ever since because 60 seconds is not a very long time. 
Would I have regrets? What would I want to have done differently? What would be the testament of my life? What has my impact been to this day? I think God breathes into us, but we also get to breathe into others. God's breath brings life. What has my breath brought to those around me? I think if we ask ourselves that question, we would quickly find out what the testament of our lives is. And if anything uh, in you would have a regret about not being in contact with the Spirit of God, I want you to take note of it. I don't want you to leave church today without making a decision to take the Spirit of God seriously in your life. If there's something that I know for certain, it is that you cannot be a disciple of Jesus and not be in contact with the Spirit of God. God is not hiding from us. God is not far away. God is nearer than you think. And all we need to do is to turn toward him. As a church, we often, often we pray for revival. And revival means to become alive again. It's just another way of saying resurrection. Resurrection happens here, now, before it happens in the physical sense. Receiving the Holy Spirit means to simply be open to him. The Holy Spirit has been at work since before creation. If you have been open to Jesus, you are ready to receive the Spirit. And trust me, I know how, how weird that all sounds, but the Spirit is not a weird thing. He is God. Paul says that none of us has seen God, yet we have the mind of God, meaning we have the Spirit of God. Paul calls us to pray in the Spirit at all times. He even describes the results of a Christian life as producing the fruits of the Spirit. Christianity without the Spirit is empty. It is dead. The Holy Spirit reveals truths to us. He moves us to action, moves us to create and to speak and to sing. The Holy Spirit moves us to life because he restores and he recreates us. The Holy Spirit allows us to understand truth outside of our narrow sight and human inclinations. The Spirit causes us to prophesy. Yes, prophesy. It means to, to, to be truth-telling, to testify to the truth. We are all capable of this through the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament book of Joel says in chapter 2, verse 28, Then afterward I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And just to drive the point home, Peter makes a direct reference to this in his speech after the Pentecost, when the disciples received the Holy Spirit, and you can read all about it in the book of Acts. Even among you here at Colton SDA Church, I can say that I have experienced prophecy. Sadie, who now rests in peace, where I even knew who she was, 
I never shared this with anyone. She came up to me one time after a, a youth event. I was just, I think, visiting the church. I had no idea who she was, but she took me aside right out there in the lobby. And, he, and she said to me, um, you are going to be a minister of the word someday. And at the time, I had no idea how to respond to that. I don't know you. Me? <laughs> what? I, I can't. But I don't, I don't remember saying anything other than, oh, you know, okay, thank you. <laughs> you know, in fact, like I said, I didn't even know her name too much later. I had no intention of becoming a minister of anything at that time. I might have thought about it, but it was definitely not something that I imagined would be a reality. And yet here I am. So truth-telling, truth-revealing, prophecy, yes, even among you, I've seen it happen. But it's impossible to recognize it if you are not aware of the Holy Spirit to begin with. Like I said, being aware of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you're good or you're going to do everything you feel impressed by God. Jonah is a very good example of someone who is fully aware of God's spirit, yet refused to do what God had asked him to do. Inspiring the breath of God does not make us infallible. It does, however, challenge us and begin to transform us. The constant contact begins to mold us, recreating us into the types of human beings that God intends us to be restoring all of the broken areas and making them beautiful. The spirit of truth will prove us wrong about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. In other words, these things are often not what we have made them out to be. We often say that we cannot fully understand scripture without the witness of the spirit. But sometimes I think we're so used to living in a spiritless world that we think our own conscience is the Holy Spirit. And that's not how it works. The scriptures are God-breathed. Therefore, we should seek out the God-breath to guide us in the sacred work of seeking wisdom through them. The Spirit is always ready to be received. The question is, are you ready to become a disciple? The Holy Spirit only declares to us what he hears from Jesus and the Father. He is the advocate. He is the helper. So the good news is this. God is ready for you. Are you ready for him? Are you willing to allow God to challenge and to mold you? My hope is that you are and that God can convince you if you are not. The most life-giving part of being a Christian is seeing the active work of the Spirit. And it is all possible because of the grace that we receive through Jesus Christ. Understanding the law of God is not difficult when we have this interconnectedness with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. When we abide in Him and He abides in us, we are bound to produce the fruits of the Spirit. My hope is that this 
has awakened a desire in you to see God in prayer in your personal lives. That the Holy Spirit may guide you and teach you and remind you, as Jesus would, that you are, above all, loved and that you've been taken under the wing of the greatest teacher of all, God himself. Let's pray. Creator God, you are the life-giving spirit. And we ask only to be reminded of the joy and fullness of life that is available in you. May we be reminded that you are ever willing to work with us to restore and reconcile all of the darkest, most broken areas of our lives. If we only come to you and in prayer ask for your healing. So today I ask not that you pour out your spirit on each of us, but rather that we be welcoming to you, to your spirit today since your spirit has already been given and promised. Help us to welcome you, to allow you to begin the good work in us without hesitation, that we may find the everlasting life promised to us by getting to know you. Guide us into the truth about ourselves, though it may be uncomfortable, so that we may produce the fruits of life. Guide us into the truth about yourself so that we may be ever reminded of your never-ending grace. Guide us into the truth about righteousness so that we may become people who treat others with equity and dignity. And guide us into the truth about judgment so that we may not be so quick to judge, but rather to make things right when we can. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.